the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the program. Coming up, we'll get the latest from the RFS about the fire situation. We also hear about those useful rains in early October. They seem to have saved quite a few crops in the south and west of the state. Some more details on that, although there's uh, overall it's still not the uh, greatest tro- crop this year. Well, no, no, I, I totally agree with Bear. Like last year's wheat crop was a monster of 40 million metric tonnes and this year's crop is going to be 25, 26 million tonnes of wheat. Yeah. It, it's more like the fact that like at October 1st, end of September, October 1st... It was looking a lot worse. Oh, yes. I think a lot of traders were really depressed. Farmers were depressed. We'll have more on that story shortly, uh, hoping to cross to the RFS uh, to get the latest on the fire situation. And, uh, of course, we know that uh, the uh, situation with the heat and the wind is uh, not ideal, so we get the latest on that and also on the total fire bans. Quite a few areas under total fire bans at the moment. That's all coming up shortly on the program. But before we do that, a Victorian grain farmer who quit school to take over the family farm is the new leader of the National Farmers Federation. Former Victorian Farmers Federation President and NFF Vice President David Johinke has beaten off challenges from Queenslander Georgie Somerset and also WA's Tony York to take the top job. He says he's excited to take over from outgoing President Fiona Simpson and advocate for Australia's farmers. Where I started from, from the Wallapag group upwards, uh, it's a great honour to have represented Victoria, but now to step at the national level is once again a huge, huge honour and there's a lot of work to be done and I'm just uh, ready to get into it. You've served quite a, a long term on the NFF board already. You've been vice president before this, but that didn't make you stepping up to this role as NFF president any easier, I'd imagine, because the competition from Queensland and Western Australia from other candidates was quite strong. Look, fantastic to have some real calibre of um, candidates put themselves forward. Both Georgie and Tony are really good operators. They've been at the top of their game at the state level and they'll still be on the national board. So um, it's fantastic to, to have a competition like that. It's also great that um, it shone the light on members' issues as we all got around the membership and um, understand their their, their uh, personal uh, bent on different things that we're tackling. Um, actually, it's highlighted as a collective what we can do better. So for me, um, once again, fantastic process, really great to have um, support from the whole family and uh, once again the, the three of us have all got together and really just committed to bunkering down on some key issues for the NFF. Let's talk through you a little bit. For those who don't know you, what, tell us about your farm. Tell us about your farming credentials and your history. Um, I guess for me it's been a, a, a journey from a very early age. I've always wanted to be involved in agriculture but um, as soon as I finished high school my father got very crook and um, I basically closed my, my books at high school and went home and took over the farm. And um, from there, I can honestly say that any mistake I made has been my own. And uh, I've always been wanting to make sure that uh, I lived out the, the morals that my grandpa it's really installed in me about community. He said, um, you should be the community you want to want to be want to live in, so become that person. So I've always been involved in, in anything that advances agriculture or supports people. That led me to um, going to my first VFF district council meeting, of which I came back to the secretary-treasurer um, because I had a bit of spunk, I believe. And um, then just throughout that journey, um, maintained that desire to help farmers, which led me through the 
uh, executive roles at both um, VFF and now NFF. And what do you bring to the role? What do you want to to do in your time as an NFF president? Well, there's obviously a, a legacy piece of making sure that farmers are front and centre in both the agricultural conversations in Parliament. And now that doesn't mean that we just talk to the Ag Minister. That means we've got a lot of different portfolios that affect us, both from uh, the the production side of things, but also the legislation side of um, how we operate in their frameworks. So uh, making sure that we continue on that the bread and butter work. But for me especially, is around making sure that we're getting that next generation of farmers uh, involved in uh, agriculture, making sure that their career opportunities uh, are very much stepped out and available to them, um, and then also keeping farmers productive and profitable. So what we've seen um, lately is a raft of legislation coming through that is compounding the issues that agriculture is facing and creating uncertainty where we had some stability for a period that now is actually making farmers reassess and um, have to question where and how they want to participate in the industry. You follow in the footsteps of Fiona Simpson, a high-profile leader of the NFF who made her uh, departing address to the press club yesterday. Are they big shoes to Phil? Oh, absolutely. Fiona's left a huge legacy of unity within the agricultural sector, as well as making sure that we aren't an echo chamber. Agriculture can talk to itself or build itself a lot, but she's really engaged the wider community, really tried to ensure that we're engaging on issues that traditionally we may not have been um, uh, front and centre on, so issues such as climate change, issues such as uh, housing, making sure that they are a part of our dialogue within the representative sector because they actually do affect us. They are beyond the farm and can have a huge influence on the success of their operation. David Johinke is the new National Farmers Federation president. He was speaking there to Warwick Long. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. It's coming up to 11 minutes past 12. Well, let's uh, look at some finance news now because uh, today the iconic spread Vegemite is celebrating its 100th anniversary, but there's not much to celebrate for the parent company, Bega Group. The share price has halved in the last two years. Company earnings are down 11% this year, and dairy farmers use the AGM to question the strategy from some of the company leaders. Josh Becker has this report. It, does, it gives nobody any pleasure to see the share price where it is, and we don't think it reflects that opportunity. That's Executive Chairman of Bega Group, Barry Irvin. And while the branded business, Vegemite and other spreads, flavoured milk and yoghurts are performing well for the business, their bulk commodity dairy businesses have faced significant headwinds. CEO Peter Finlay explained the key challenges. These have included the impact, the impact of COVID-19, significant supply chain disruptions, unprecedented cost increases, and then a disconnection between highly volatile dairy commodity prices and farm gate milk prices in Australia. But for Gabago dairy farmer Tony Allen, he used the question time at the annual general meeting yesterday to criticise the company direction. We're here today a litany of excuses, reasons why we've had to redesign what we do within the company as a result of the recent milk rise. That milk rise should have been in the system and proactively looked upon years ago. Commodity prices, commodity markets have never been the saviour of dairy farmers. They might have been the saviour of companies, but they certainly weren't the saviour of dairy farmers. So when I go to the pub on Friday night and talk to the 
farmers, we, we talk about what we call the pup test. Is this company really doing as well as the glossy magazines predict in terms of the pup test? Seven and a half cents dividend doesn't cut the mustard. The price of the farmers really doesn't cut the mustard in terms of longevity for my son and any of his children. And that's the reality of it. I'm sorry to say that, but that's the reality. So don't make excuses, be proactive, get into products that actually return money to the company that can be then transferred back to the farm. In other words, profitability. Because you can't expect young men and young women to turn up on their farm seven days a week and receive a price decline as we got this year. Thank, thanks for the commentary, Tony. And I, and I think what I would, you know, quite frankly, I, I'll, I'll respond to that in, uh, in the only way I can. So you've never seen a, bu a business that's more proactive. You've never seen a business change and transform more than this business. That's gone into exactly what you said. Fresh dairy, fresh yogurt, fresh brands. This company has done that. This company is exposed because we are in food products and we are in agriculture and I'm not going to sugarcoat things that cannot, cannot be sugarcoated. We, we live in a global supply chain. There is enormous amounts of dairy products being imported to this country as we speak now from New Zealand. You'll say it shouldn't happen. I'll say it shouldn't happen, but it, it's happening. And, 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 and if we stepped away from the more emotive thing around, say, a dairy farmer, most dairy farmers are also beef farmers, and we've seen what's happened with the beef markets and the sheep markets over the last 12 months. And to say that you can completely insulate yourself from them would not be genuine by me. But what would be genuine by me is to say that we have transformed the company into fresh products, which, which, which Pete's outlined, into brands that we've outlined. This is not about us making excuses. We are not making excuses. There has never been a company more proactive. And as many would know that have a long memory, there's a very large number of dairy companies that don't exist today because they weren't proactive. There is a reason why Beaker exists. But I, like you, look to the future. And I, like you, have a son that is running our dairy farm and actually have six grandchildren that I would love to see there. So we are, of course, interested in sustainability across the entire supply chain. And as you quite rightly say, that means profitability across the entire supply chain. It is no good if our customers are not making any money because that will not, it is no good if our consumers are not buying our product. It is no good if the processor is not making enough money to reinvest, to grow and be proactive, as you said, and it is no good if the farmer is not making money. That balance has changed over the years. In fact, the, the latest dairy farm monitor stats show very good positive returns for farmers last year, which is great. That is what we want. What Pete was demonstrating there, which was perhaps missed, was that in terms of our branded business and its alignment to the Australian marketplace, and the premiums and the profitability from that part of the business, it is strong. In terms of the area, which is why there's an impairment, in the commodity part of our business that is, that, that is more aligned to the international market, it is not strong. And we cannot insulate ourselves entirely from all of that, inclusive of the impact of those lower commodity prices in the Australian market. Now, we are seeing those commodity markets start to improve. I think the, the positive thing that we would, would say today as far as the farmer is concerned is that the biggest impacts of those commodity markets have not been felt on farm, in dairy, anything like the way they have been felt on farm, in beef, or in farm, and sheep, or other areas. 
But I, the one thing I would, I, I would disagree with is the argument about whether we've been proactive or not. I think the, 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 the whole point of what we've been doing and what we've built has always been about trying to stay ahead of that curve, and I think it's a great demonstration that we've done that. Executive Chairman of the Bega Group, Barry Irvin, ending that report from Josh Becker. It's 17 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, let's get the uh, latest situation on the fires. The weather conditions we're hearing this afternoon expected to continue to deteriorate and then there will be a cool change, but a wind change as well. Just uh, to uh, give us the latest situation on the fires, Ben Shepherd joins us from the RFS. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Thanks for having me on. So the current fire situation warming up a bit, the wind freshening up a bit. Uh, have we seen any upgrades at all at this stage? Yeah, literally in the in the past minute, there has been a fire that that we've just become aware of on the New England Highway at Ravensworth, which is in the Singleton LGA, and that's a grass fire that's burning alongside the New England Highway. That's just been upgraded to a watch and act uh, as that fire burns. Needs some uh, mining infrastructure and the road itself, so that it's a new fire. But we can expect across the afternoon, as these conditions really start to deteriorate. Uh, that we're going to start to see those winds start to strengthen. We're really going to start to see that heat of the day and we're going to start to see a number of these fires start to move in the landscape. Okay, because you're watching closely quite a number of fires, some of those big fires that are still out there on the mid-north coast. Yeah, particularly up in the north of the state, uh, a number of those fires continue to burn uh, uncontained. And today's weather, it's just going to put problems uh, against some of those containment lines that we've had in place. The other real difficult thing from a weather perspective is we are seeing some coastal uh, influences or coastal winds. And we have what we know is that convergence uh, that's sitting across the top of these fire grounds. And that's where the northwesterly winds are pushing against these nor'easters. So it makes it really hard to predict and really hard to understand what's going to happen with these winds. Um, so, look, uh, we're monitoring that very closely. But, look, yeah, high temperatures expected up in the north, you know, high 30s, maybe even pushing towards 40 degrees, very, very dry uh, before we could start to see that, that subtly change move all the way up the coast. And hopefully, I'm crossing my fingers like most of us are, we might see a little bit of rain with that. But, look, it's not going to be enough to extinguish these fires. It'll probably give us a little reprieve for a couple of days before we start to see an increase of fire um, uh, the, the, the fire index towards early next week. Yeah, we've seen the Bureau sort of uh, walk back on the amount of rain we might uh, expect. So with that weather change, with the cool change, not substantial rain, they were hoping it might be a bit more than that. So it's not, yeah. you're, now, you're not now um, uh, counting on that rain to put out these fires of sort of 20 no. millimetres or 30 millimetres of rain or anything like that. Yeah, look, I, I think if if we get on some of these fire grounds, maybe eight to ten mil, um, that you know that that might be, you know, a favourable in for the fact that it just might calm the conditions for a little bit. But looking into a, a really early next week already, on Monday and Tuesday, starting to see broad areas once again of high fire danger, uh, and then through places like the northern slopes and northwestern, you know, we could once again start to see some extreme fire danger on Tuesday. So. Just while we're incredibly dry, um, you know, we're just seeing that that increase of fire activity across the state. Um, we just need people to be mindful of, and please, just a reminder, please be incredibly careful with the use of fire outdoors. If it's under a total fire plan, please don't. But just, yeah, what we don't want to see is any more fires, because we've still got a busy afternoon ahead of us um, with all the fires that we've currently got burning across the state. So, uh, yeah, we just need people just to be wary, 
make sure their plans are in place because, yeah, still dealing with more than 70 fires of that, about 15 are yet to be contained. Yeah, still uh, still dealing with 70 fires. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, a stark reminder, I guess. And now the, uh, the Willy Willy Road fire is the one that's uh, had a lot of attention recently. Being controlled, a little bit more hopeful of that, but it's still it's uh, the size of it is huge, 20, yeah. 29,000 hectares. Yeah, so that, that fire, we've, we've had some really good progress over the last few days, especially on the southern edge of it. Uh, but you're right, it is enormous. And that the actual perimeter around that fire alone is some 146 kilometres. So that's the same sort of distance between Sydney and Newcastle. So just on one fire, it's a lot to deal with. So uh, firefighters are having to make their way around that edge to make sure there is no uh, burning trees on embers once we do get control of it. Because under today's conditions, you know, we could still see those embers blow past and go on to to, uh, to impact on other people and property. But look, really good also engagement from local property owners up there. Obviously, they're playing their part, showing that they're prepared and monitoring some of these edges as well. So still a massive effort. But, you know, that, as, as you just touched on, it's only one of 70 fires that we're having to deal with. Yes, and uh, a number of areas, uh, extreme fire danger uh, throughout the state, northern inland, the Hunter and uh, elsewhere in the state as well, although we are expecting that change to come through. But uh, there's a concern there about uh, thunderstorms and lightning when the change goes through, and are you urging locals to be on the lookout for any new fires? Yeah, very much so. What we tend to see with those thunderstorms as they start to move through the state is is, is quite erratic winds as well. Um, and it really allows, while we see that change start to approach and move through, that, that can really do uh, some quite dynamic things to, to the fire. So we're having to watch that. But look, you, you're right. Given that we're not likely to see really any significant rain with the change, um, there is the possibility of, of um, some dry lightning in and around these storms. So we're, we're monitoring it very closely, but as well, if, you, if property owners do see an unattended fire, call it in as quickly as possible uh, because we want to get resources there, either fire trucks or, or aviation resources there to try and keep them as small as possible. Okay, and just re- just reminding our listeners that uh, there is a watch and act in place now for that fire at Singleton, which is a grass fire there. So uh, watch and act, uh, that's a situation there. That's just, that's uh, that's the latest from the RFS. Yeah, that's right. Just on that, the New England Highway there at Ravensworth. Uh, so we have a grass fire that is moving uh, basically just in, in the vicinity of, of that location. So please just be aware if you're driving on that highway as well, you might have to slow down or even stop. So... It is a new fire that we're obviously getting trucks to at the moment. And, of course, stay listening to ABC Local Radio for any updates because the weather conditions are uh, getting worse, not better, this afternoon, hotter and uh, a bit of wind around. Ben Shepherd, thanks for that. No problem at all. Thanks, Michael. Ben Shepherd there at uh, the uh, Rural Fire Service. It's coming up to uh, 24 minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the federal government has today put another $2 billion into a critical minerals financing fund. The announcement was made by the Prime Minister, who's in the US, meeting with President Biden at the moment. The deal sets up some links with the US for Australian companies to access schemes to promote manufacturing there. Nick Erner is the Managing Director of Perth-based Alcane Resources and also Director of Critical Mineral Minerals Company ASM, which is building a processing plant in Dubbo. He told David Clawton that the funding will help Australian companies to finance big projects in a market that's dominated at the moment by China. Because the market is dominated by China, it's very difficult to get pricing and contracts with major players because the, you know, the Chinese can um, get involved in that market. 
And so providing debt support, which is what the government is proposing, provides a lot of stability for other investors to then join in. And so by taking the lead, that's how the Australian government can really make a difference, bringing projects into fruition. So it just enables some smaller players in Australia to kind of play in a, amongst the big boys. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Particularly as these things, if you're a single, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the companies trying to start these type of assets are single mine companies. So, you know, so the asset that they're talking about might be the only one. So we're not talking about Rio Tinto trying to start, you know, yet another mine. We're talking about smaller players, um, you know, like ourselves or others, trying to start like a single asset here. And so it's very, very difficult for those people. They don't have a, a full balance sheet that they can deploy. You know, they don't already have lots of money sitting around to deploy onto getting that project. And so they need to attract other investors and other customers. And those other customers, it's, they're like saying, you know, you're not betting on Woolworths, you're betting on a whole new supermarket being built. And so, um, you know, th- th- they need support in order to make that less risky to attract other investors. So they talk a bit about projects that might have been struggling, benefiting from that kind of arrangement. So are there particular yeah. projects that you think might well benefit? Well, the project I'm most familiar with is um, you know, Australian Strategic Material, or ASM's project at, at Dubbo, and that would certainly benefit from that. Because in, in, in the case of ASM, you know, finding uh, off-take partners is the critical thing, and off-take partners tend to only want to commit something if they think it's certainly going to go ahead. So if you can... Uh, get a get a block of government funding that increases the likelihood and certainty of your project being developed, then you, you know, it becomes a virtuous circle of attracting others. Yeah, and so offtake yeah. is is whatever it is that you're producing. Yeah, you want to tell someone that, that yeah, exactly. will buy whatever exactly. you're producing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it's like um you know for for you know for listeners that are more familiar familiar with uh, say you know wheat or something like that. It's it's like getting someone to agree to buy your wheat in advance, even if they don't know that you. Can plant it, and in your case, or ASM, yeah. they're they're building a plant at Dubbo to convert yeah, rare that's earth. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, where's yeah, that project correct. at now? So that project is is right at this stage of of, of financing. In fact, the um, managing director of of that Rowena Smith is actually was actually at the round table with um, the prime minister and you know U.S. president uh, in Washington. There were some other key players there: Nearstar, Alliance Nickel. Alpha, so there's some companies there over in WA, which is obviously a big player in the critical mineral space. Yeah, yeah, and all of these things are required for the next stage in you know energy consumption. And you know the thing we need to remember, of course, is all, all of the things that as we move from fuel-fired stuff, whether it's generators or vehicles, whatever, to electric stuff, is that all of them are going to need you know a lot of different elements. You know, whether it's nickel, cobalt, lithium you know, going to the battery side of it, whether it's rare earths going to the electric motor side of it, whether it's copper, such as, you know, we, Alcana are an aspirant for our very large project, you know, near Wellington called Boda with that, you know, for all the, you know, connecting it all up because there's a whole lot more transmission electricity that needs to occur. All these things are what this um, package is designed to make sure that Australia doesn't get left behind as an investment destination in that you know, increasing consumption we're going to see across all those metals across the next um, generation. This is coming out of a, an Australia-US task force on critical minerals. Yeah. And one of yeah. the outcomes of this meeting was some access to the US through the Inflation Reduction Act there. Can you explain what that's about? Yeah, I can. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, a tiny bit of a misnomer because it's spending a lot of money. But um, what that's really trying to do is to 
make the US supply chain uh, a lot more dependent on itself as a nation or, or uh, I'll call it friendly and aligned countries that are associated with it. And so in particular, looking at elements and, and critical minerals that, are, that allow the manufacturing sector, in particular electric vehicle and um, renewable energy sector within America to flourish, right? And so the, the, the whole purpose of the Inflation Reduction Act and therefore the, the supply chain ripples out to countries like Australia to supply raw materials is to foster and grow capacity in those countries to feed uh, America. And it, it, it's, you know, not clearly stated, but obviously very, very implicit that it's trying to make sure it's independent of China within that process. And how, do, how does the average yeah. Joe, whose dollars, whose taxation yeah. money is going into this, know very that that money is yeah. going to be well spent? I, I mean, it's going to be as well spent as sort of any other government program, which means there'll be, you know, hits and misses, right? I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be frank about it. But they do have, you know, quite a bit of oversight. I think the one thing that can give people reassurance is that there's also going to be a lot of private money going into it, right? So it's not just government money going on a government program. It's government money assisting private money to be enabled. So let's say, you know, half a billion dollars went into something, which is a lot of money. Private investors be putting at least another billion in, right? So that's sort of the first part around the stewardship of it. The second thing is, out of the first two billion dollar program, for instance, one of the more widely publicised things was a 1.2 billion, or roughly, loan to Aluka to develop a rare earth um, processing facility in Western Australia. Yep. And we, you know they would not have done that with it without it. So I think you know the thing for people to remember is a lot of these projects are you know, in the half billion to two billion dollar execution range. And so, you know, that is that is serious money. You know, all of those things are, are in regional Australia and that's, I think, a really good thing. You know, despite all the controversy that we hear about, regional Australia has a, you know, a symbiotic relationship, a lot between mining and agriculture in so many of the towns. And, you know, I think this helps to promote that future. Nick Erner is a Managing Director of Alcane Resources and Director of Critical Minerals Company ASM, talking about that uh, announcement from the Prime Minister in uh, Washington about increasing the Critical Minerals Financing Fund, uh, putting in another $2 billion. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, 28 minutes to one, and it's time to find out what else is happening in the news. Adam Story's here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, we've got the latest consumer price index figures. Uh, it's they're up uh, 1.2% for the September quarter. That's up from the 0.8% increase in the June quarter. So that puts the annual rate of inflation at 5.4%, slightly lower than the uh, 6% recorded in June. Uh, it is above what most economists had predicted. So... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here we go. So all the money's going on the rate rise. <laughs> uh, oh, it's only week? a small, it's only 0.1%. I mean, it's and most of it's pen, petrol prices. Well, this is the thing: seven point two percent they yeah. went up in September. See, see, there's no yeah. that's not really inflation. It's not an across the board no. thing. No. I mean, that's that's a big whack. Yeah, for fuel. I wouldn't be. No. I wouldn't be betting on a rate rise. All right, okay. There you go. Put you down. Put you down okay. for, no. you know, <laughs> okay. Not that I am a betting man, and of not course what, and not. Of course, and I wouldn't encourage. Here. No, no. Anyway, no. the uh, head of. <laughs> You should have that disclaimer just on a card <laughs> so we can... Yeah. Uh, the, Sting. Yeah, the... Uh, <clears throat> 
the uh, oh, we'll do it live. Yeah. Uh, the uh, sorry, in joke there. Uh, the head of the Treasury Department, meanwhile, says Australia chan- Australia's chance of avoiding recession uh, have improved slightly. Uh, the uh, global economic growth is expected to slow again next year. Uh, but uh, the Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy says, uh, with uh, low unemployment rates in Australia. Um, he says that uh, he thinks inflation can fall back to the target range and that uh, he said it's described it as a narrow path, but there is a path there to be taken. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Overseas now, the Prime Minister says workers continuing to try to find paths for Australians out of Gaza. Uh, The federal government has joined a growing chorus of international calls for a pause in hostilities. Uh, 79 Australians are in Gaza trying to find a way to get them out of the occupied uh, territories. Uh, Meanwhile, Australian Defence Force personnel are being deployed to the Middle East as concerns about the security situation grows. Uh, They won't say how many members are being sent or where they'll be based. Uh, They're also flying two additional aircraft to the region. Now, the uh, Air Vice Marshal, uh, Stephen Chappell, says the role is to provide support to Australian citizens if the situation deteriorates. This isn't part of any sort of, you know, potential international coalition, as (laughs) being suggested by the the French president. Right. Uh, Back home, the French, uh, sorry, the uh, federal court has found that Carnival Cruise Lines should have cancelled the Ruby Princess voyage. Uh, from Sydney to New Zealand in March 2020, given COVID outbreaks on two other ships uh, in its fleet. Uh, this was a ruling handed down in a judgment in a class action brought by a woman whose husband ended up in intensive care after catching COVID on board. He was more than 660 people who tested positive on board, uh, with uh, 28 of them died. And so Justice Stewart has ruled the Carnival Cruise Lines was negligent uh, when it allowed the ship to leave. No word on costs at this stage. Yeah, my, my son was at Circular Quay when they let them all off the boat. Yes. And they were just, all these it, people were just flooding it, out. It was the- quite a fearful <laughs> scene to people watch. People were like, what's going on? And then, of course, found out later. Jumping into cabs, oh. <laughs> heading oh. off to... <laughs> <laughs> All over the place. All over the place, yes. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Oh, what days they were. Oh. <laughs> that's right. Um, and the head of Australia's Post uh, says it makes no sense to maintain the company's existing number of post offices. Mm. So it looks like a post office closure coming to a town near you. Mm. Uh, he says the company, uh, particularly in metropolitan areas, uh, he's talking about. Uh, they currently operate 4,000 post offices, uh, so we'll probably be starting to see a few. They're mandated, though, to have they a certain number. They are mandated in a certain yeah. number. So yeah. I think he's what he's doing is trying to get that mandate down. Get their down. mandate down, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say, just yeah. by reading between the lines yeah. there. Mm. All right. Down, down, down. If he wants that mandate, we don't know. I know. Do we have to... Do we have to do, no, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do advertising here. Not no, the ABC. No, 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 no. All right. Thanks for that, Adam. Adam will be back at one o'clock with all the news. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to 24 minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Jordan Atara at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So we were talking about this change coming through. It's um, hot and windy conditions that are, you know the RFS was saying they're a little bit worried about the conditions later on today, and some of those fires might spark up a bit, particularly the uh, Willy Willy fire 
on the uh, mid north coast and uh, some of the uh, yes the conditions there are not great so there's, we've got some total fire bans and emergency uh, warnings out there uh, uh, well not emergency warnings but uh, information saying that uh, there's total fire bans in a number of regions at the moment um, uh, tell us about this change that's coming through you know when's that going to when's that likely to happen yeah, so it's located just around the Tari area at the moment, stretching through parts of the inland. Uh, at this stage, it's going to be tracking up the coastlines. We head through the later part of the afternoon, edging into parts um, towards the Byron Way as we head towards late this evening. So the timing of that change is of high interest due to, again, the influence it will have on those fires. Uh, so as that change moves up the coast, we'll obviously have those quite strong northwesterly winds combining with some sea breezes ahead of it and then they shift to the more subtly regime behind that, um, that change itself. Um, what we'll be noting, obviously, is as that change finally moves out as we head into tomorrow, it will be replaced with quite cool conditions as well as the influence of some more shower activity into the northeast of the state. It is going to be a continuation through Thursday into Friday, focused into eastern, in particular northeastern parts over fire grounds, where we'll be seeing consistent and persistent showers um, that will be bringing... Totals of widespread um, amounts of around 10 to 30 mils per day. Um, there is obviously the chance we could see some even higher totals around parts of the coastal fringe or influenced by the local topography. Um, but at this stage, it is all, again, still slightly uncertain exactly where everyone will get the rain exactly. Um, but obviously, we will be seeing a good chance we'll be seeing rain on the ground over the Thursday and Friday um, period for those areas in the northeast. There will be a slight easing as we head into Saturday as that um, trough and frontal system obviously move further out into the Tasman Sea and it will be replaced with, again, those quite cool air around the state. So we'll be seeing, again, those temperatures in the high 30s into potentially low 40s today, shifting quite dramatically to the high teens in those areas as we get towards Friday and into Saturday. And we're hearing from the RFS that the latest briefing they had from the Bureau was that there probably won't be as much rain as they were hoping in some of those sort of hot spot areas where we see those bigger fires, you know, that uh, that uh, Willy Willy Road fire, which is at about 30,000 hectares. Yeah, so our, the ways our models work, obviously, is that we can see singular models predict high amounts of rainfalls and obviously the most opportune places where we want to obviously see that rain falling, but it does change run by run. At the moment, obviously, as we made uh, note, the widespread chance of seeing rainfall in the order of 10 plus mils is definitely there, so it will definitely have an influence on those fire grounds. As for rain that will put out fires, it's still, again, one we're just going to have to keep tracking um, as obviously that level of uncertainty is so high that we don't want to necessarily put ourselves in a position to suggest that we think we're going to get enough rain at this stage for that. Okay. and uh, But in benign conditions after that for a while, but heating up, what's happening after that? Yeah, so we will be seeing a return to some warming weather as we head into the later part of Sunday for inland parts, and then that is going to be influenced as we head into Monday. No significant rainfall, obviously, through later part of Saturday, Sunday into Monday. We'll be tracking our next cold front driving those warmer conditions as we head between Monday and Tuesday. And there is the potential we could see a, another uh, wind and warm temperatures risk into those northeastern parts as we head into the, sort of the earlier parts of next week. But again, the timing of those systems, as we always know, is a little bit uncertain at this stage, but it's our next flag for potential weather that could be in areas that are potentially at the moment seeing quite high fire danger.
Yeah, okay, so we need to watch it closely. And also uh, uh, the RFS was saying if we do have any thunderstorms or lightning and uh, people need to watch that and see if any uh, if there, we see any new fires that come out of, out of that as well. So just a reminder about that. Uh, Jordan, thanks for that. Catch you later, Michael. It's 20 minutes to one on the Country Hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Useful rain in early October have saved quite a few crops in the south and west of the state. The uh, high price of wheat on the domestic market, market that's also meant that uh, those that have had the luxury of using irrigation have used it uh, when they could to finish off the crops, particularly wheat crops. Grains analyst at Stone X, Stefan Meyer, says that in the central west and the north of the state, many farms have struggled and the overall crop volumes are still not great, but it's not as disastrous as we saw in the drought years of 2018 or 2019? Uh, yeah, look, the areas from uh, Mildura down to uh, Swan Hill, Menangatang, uh, Oyen areas look amazing. I think that area is probably as good as it's ever been. And then you head towards Mulamine and uh, uh, Hay, and, and things look very good there, pretty good there as well. And then you go, uh, I mean, there's a lot more wheat this year being irrigated than would be traditional, given that we had quite cheap water for the last year. And uh, farmers in Australia probably filled up all their turkeys' nests and, uh, yeah, are using uh, the cheap water that they had bought uh, 12 months ago to water things like their winter wheat and durum at the moment, uh, which makes economic sense when you've got wheat prices at $400 a ton. Obviously, they've come off a bit now, but they were 400 to $450 a ton at one point here this year where farmers could afford, sold and bought water at the same time for probably about $150 a meg. Obviously, water now is a lot more. It's probably more like three to $400 a meg. But yeah, then the other thing is uh, my colleagues and I last week uh, flew to Dubbo. We drove through to uh, Trangin Air Mine. That area was much worse than I thought. A lot more hay was made from the wheat and barley grain was made cut for hay, which is really disappointing. But then we headed up to uh, Moree, uh, Narrabrine and Moree. Things were improved quite a bit there. Uh, there's not much west of Moree. But yeah, north and east of Moree, towards uh, North Star, Crop Creek. You know, uh, we got about an average crop in that area, and I think people are happy with an average crop given the uh, El Nino forecast that we had. The other thing that's really surprising is there's a huge west of Maury. I mean, we were fortunate last year when all the flooding happened. The subsoil moisture west of Maury was basically at 100% profile, and there are going to be crops west of... There's, no, there's not a lot of crop around Walgett. That's pretty much a dead zone. But then you go further west of Walga towards uh, Berwarna, even Gaduga. There's wheat coming off there today as we speak, uh, which is kind of crazy to think that crops further west of Walga would be better than crops at Walga. Yeah, there was, like you say, there was subsoil moisture, but a lot of uh, croppers and in the central west as well, they, they just didn't get that starting rain to, to get them up and going and get the roots down deep enough to get to the subsoil moisture in, in many cases. Yeah, look, I think you hit the nail on the head. You look at the uh, NDVI, the Vegetative Health Index maps, and you see that western New South Wales in a relative uh, Vegetative Health Index is looking much better than the centre between the, yeah, probably like 200, 200 kilometres west of the Newell looks. 100 kilometres west of the Newell looks probably uh, worse than 200 kilometres west of the Newell. Guys who may be planted early uh, or had some lucky showers. Uh, I know Ningen itself is probably not, most of Ningen's pretty much gone. There's not, there's not a lot of crop around Ningen. 
but then 60k southwest inning and those guys had you know two inches of rain when those guys at Ningen didn't so you know there's like Gugawi up to Hilston as well there's crops around there and you have along west there's crops there there's crops in Congo but they're not good so it, it was a case of people having a bit of irrigation water they could use it on their crops and it made economic sense because of the sort of drought pricing of wheat I think you hit the nail on the head I mean when wheat was full you, you could afford salt wheat there for 450 bucks a ton into the port and bought water for $150 a meg, well, that makes a lot of sense, right? You made That's almost better than growing cotton. Yeah, I think a lot of farmers did that, but obviously not everyone has the luxury of having turkey's nests or having uh, irrigation channels right beside their fields. Um, but yeah, look, I think Mother Nature uh, uh, was kind to some and not so kind to others. And, uh, you know, I also want to highlight that, you know, uh, that rain that we had, uh, I think it was the 4th or 5th or 6th of uh, uh, October, uh, really saved the crops in many regions. Uh, so that was cri- that was critical rain, you reckon? And it, you know, a lot of people didn't make a big deal about it, but it did actually help a lot of people. Sometimes forget that places like Daniloquin and Oakland uh, are still in New South Wales and Bergen, and those crops there is going to be a phenomenal amount of tons, uh, uh, yeah, south of uh, Tamora, uh, that benefited from those rains and that feed obviously the Melbourne market zone. But I think grain from places like Bergen North this year will feed Queensland. The Queensland grain prices, you know, wheat on the downs and barley on the downs is still trading $460 a ton, which is the most expensive grain in the world other than maybe the Brisbane market zone. Uh, the, the rain was life-saving. The other, the other thing that I will say is that uh, the frosts that we had in the beginning of September are going to uh, surprise some farmers. Uh, we had minus 2 to minus 3 degrees Celsius. Uh, in the higher elevation areas around Timora, uh, even around uh, Nairmine there, we had some frost early September. And I think the frost did do some damage. I'm hearing reports of crops to public like canola crops look reasonable, but they're only going 500 kilograms a hectare uh, until the headers and harvesters get fully into this crop. We don't really know what the crop is, but at, at the moment driving around past these fields at 120 you know, kilometers an hour, you kind of think, well, the crop's going to be pretty good. But ABES is saying that, uh, it's still saying there's 25% less than we saw the previous year. So they're, they're saying it's just on or just a bit below a sort of five-year average crop. Do you think that maybe your intelligence is saying the crop's gone up a little bit from that? Well, no, no, I, I totally agree with ABES. Like last year's wheat crop was a monster of 40 million metric tonnes. And this year's crop is going to be 25, 26 million tonnes of wheat. Yeah. It, it's more like the fact that like, October 1st, end of September, October 1st. It was looking a lot worse. Oh, yes. I think a lot of traders were really depressed. Farmers were depressed. Uh, And then, obviously, that rain fell. And the rain that fell was much better than we thought. I mean, places like Tamora had 26 mils. Oakland's had 60 mils. Griffith had 12 mils. That was a lifesaver for production. Stephen Meyer, who's with Stonex, a grain trader there. It's uh, 13 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. The overwhelming majority of public submissions on the Shumling Transmission Line project have raised objections. The $3.3 billion project is for 360 kilometres of high-voltage overhead power lines in the Eastern Riverina and Southern Tablelands. Reporter Emily Doak has been looking at the submissions to the planning department and she joins me now. Good afternoon. Hi, Michael. So what sort of response was there in the submissions? 
quite a big response actually. There were 140 submissions lodged to the environmental impact statement on the Hume Link overhead transmission line proposal. Of those 140, just two were in support. But even in those submissions, when you open them up, they might start by saying we support the project in principle, but they then go on to have concerns about the project. There are a number of submissions from local councils and government authorities, which included comments on the proposal. And two MPs, Joe McGurr and Wendy Tuckerman, also raised objections to the proposed overhead transmission lines. I'd have to say, though, the vast majority of those public submissions were objections from landholders in the path of the 360-kilometre line. And, uh, of course, 80% of that line will cross agricultural land. So there was a strong interest from the farming community. So what sort of objections did they raise, these landholders, these impacted landholders? Many of them we've heard before as part of that inquiry looking at the feasibility of putting the transmission lines underground. They talked about things like the impact to undertake their routine agricultural activities, things like aerial spraying or using drones. There were fears expressed about the impact of the project on erosion, particularly in some of the higher rainfall hilly country, concerns about biosecurity. There are a lot of submissions which talked about the bushfire risk, both the uh, ability or potential fears about uh, the transmission line starting fires, but also the fact that those lines might restrict the ability for fire control using aerial control methods. There were concerns about the impact on land values and, of course, a lot of uh, calls for the overhead lines to be put underground. There were some local issues raised, including things like road access and traffic management issues, but a lot of the concerns we had seen previously in that uh, parliamentary inquiry. Yeah, and in the past we heard from uh, the previous inquiry, uh, you know, saying, oh, the bushfire risk was negligible, but it keeps coming up. It keeps coming up as an issue, issue that people are worried about. Exactly. And although there was evidence presented at that inquiry that uh, the transmission lines didn't increase the risk of of them starting fires, obviously it's something that's still a, a, a big issue for landholders and something they're very concerned about. What about the impact on forestry? Well, the environmental impact statement uh, for Humlink says the worst case scenario, 400 hectares of forestry would be permanently impacted. And the EIS, which has been put together by the proponents transgrid, says that would cost about $8 million over 30 years. The Softwood Working Group in its submission, and that group represents a lot of local industry, it values the cost of lost production at over $100 million in regional output. The Forestry Corporation of New South Wales also put in a submission and it says 700 hectares of forest is likely to be impacted by the project, both native forest and pine plantations, and it wants a two-for-one land replacement. So essentially Transgrid would need to find and buy 1,400 hectares of land in the same geographical and rainfall area. It also puts compensation needing to cover the cost of re-establishing replacement forests compensation for the lost timber value, bearing in mind that 30-year growth cycle for pine plantations, and also wants to be compensated for the commercial impacts if the Forestry Corporation couldn't meet its existing supply contracts, and also compensation for the loss of public and cultural value. But uh, the Forestry Corporation didn't put an exact dollar figure in terms of what sort of compensation it would be seeking. 
Sounds like it'd be quite a high figure, though. Um, now, what, what, what happens now? Well, Transgrid now has the opportunity to respond to these submissions. We have heard, of course, that the Premier, Chris Minns, has ruled out putting the overhead transmission lines underground, saying that it's off the table due to the prohibitive cost, that it's just too expensive. There's been a lot of uh, discussion that this project is needed to support our Australia's transition to renewable energy, and, and part of it does actually uh, facilitate the connection of Snowy 2.0 to the grid. Of course, we've heard recently that that Snowy 2.0 project has been delayed significantly. And so there has been a lot of community uh, talk that, you know, perhaps the Humlink line doesn't need to be rushed as much as it, it should. It, it, you know, the imperative hasn't been there like it is in the past and that perhaps there should be time for more consideration about the project. Emily, thanks for that. Thanks, Michael. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's seven minutes to one. Let's get the latest information on the fires. ABC Radio Emergency Information. Just letting you know, the RFS has issued a watch-and-act notice for a grass fire on the New England Highway at Ravensworth between Musselbrook and Singleton. It's out of control. It's burnt four hectares so far. Just looking at the update, yeah, still four hectares. Uh, They're saying take care in the area. It may affect the highway as well. And the RFS are also saying they're warning about the possibility of lightning strikes later today, uh, which could start fires. So they're saying... Uh, to any landholders, if you do see anything, see any lightning strikes or any fires, please report them to the RFS. It's uh, time to go to markets. First up to Lismore Cattle. Numbers were backed by 240 for a yarding of 820 head. Young cattle made up a large percentage of the yarding, along with a fair penning of cows. Quality is fairly mixed in a market that saw restock awareness steers sell up to 10 cents dearer for the better quality steers, while the planner type saw a little change. Weaner steers saw from 120 to 236 cents. Weaner heifers to restock saw cheaper trends, 100 cents to 174. And the yearling steers, they sold up to 232 cents to the trade and restockers up to 202. Heifers 242 to the trade and restocker heifers up to 134 cents. Only a few ground steers and they topped at 186 cents. Heifers up to 174. Cows attendant 20 cents dearer. Two scores, 88 to 144. Three score cows averaged 148 cents and heavy cows range from 140 to 176 cents. This is Doug Robson in Lismore. Let's go to Carcourt Sheep and Lambs. Numbers were up by 200 for a yarding of 4,100 lambs. It was a fair quality yarding with some good heavyweight lambs along with the fair numbers of trade weights. There are a few pens of new trade weight merino lambs and there are also the usual runs of lambs lacking finish and freshness. Trade weight new season lambs are 5 to 8 deer are selling from 78 to 127 to average between 460 and 530 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs are 5 to 9 cheaper on quality, with lambs weighing between 20 and 24 kilograms selling from 66 to 123. Heavyweight lambs are 17 to 20 deer with the new season lambs selling from 138 to 150 to average between 515 and 530 cents. Heavyweight old lambs sold from 145 to 165. Lambs to the restockers were five cheaper, selling from 32 to 50. Hockets were five cheaper, selling to 
There were 1170 mixed mutton yarrowi, most grades were 7 to 10 dira. Merino ewes sold from 8 to 37, while crossbred ewes sold from 14 to 44. Merino weather sold to 46. This is David Munker, CTLX for MLA. Let's go to Cowra Sheep and Lambs now. Rob Pierce is there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Numbers were slightly down for 3,200. Quality was good for the fresh new seasons, but there is an increase of lambs showing dryness. And they were mainly trade and heavyweights pen stores increased in supply. Medium and heavy trade new seasons were firm to one dira, 20-22 kilos, 91 to 110, 22-24, 105 to 124, averaging 460 to 485 cents. Heavyweights were a couple dira, while extra heavies were five cheaper, 24 to 20 133 to 135, 26 plus 136 to 145, averaging 500 to 510 cents. Restockers sold from 13 to 77, holding firm, and mutton numbers increased for 680, quality improved, prices held firm. Heavy first cross use sold from 26 to 45, averaging 105 cents. This is Rob Pierce from MLA at Cowra. Thanks, Rob. Let's go to Yas Sheep and Lambs now. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted to 10,350 and this included 4,650 new season lambs. The quality improved in the new season run while old lamb quality was mixed. There were good lines of store lambs but mostly trade and heavyweights were offered. The market sold to a mostly cheaper trend. New season store lambs to 16 kilos, $11 to 85. The trade weights were back 4 to 5, 20 to 22 kilos, 85 to 105, 22 to 24 kilos, 88 to 118, averaging 450 to 480 cents. Heavyweights 24 to 26, 104 to 130 or 460 cents on average. Old two-score processing lambs, 37 to 68. The medium and heavies lost 15 to $20, 62 to 111, or 360 to 380 cents. Heavy weights, 114 to 134, or around 400 cents. Heavy hoggets reached $100. Mutton was firm to four dearer. Medium and heavy mutton sold from $21 to $50 a head. And this has been Graham Richard. Let's go to Mossvale Cattle now with the details. Here's David Kent. Good afternoon, Michael. Numbers were similar for a total young of 647 fair to good quality cattle. There were some good lines of feeder steers and heifers, along with a few runs of high-yielding bealers. Well-bred weaners suiting the restockers were well supplied, and there were 34 mostly good quality cows. All the usual buyers were operating, selling to a stronger market. Prime bealers reached 370. Trade yielding steers were firm, with a single pen reaching 370 to average 230. Yielding heifers at a process were a few cents better, 120 to 300. Good quality feeder steers up to 17 cents steer, 170 to 226. Feeder heifers, price unchanged, to average 168. Weaner steers returning to the paddock, lifted five, with a well-bred type, 120 to 230. Weaner heifers, 17 better, 80 to 192. Heavy grain steers down 20, 180 to 230. Grand heifers also dearer, 168 to 180. The middle run of cows up 8, 70 to 140. Heavy prime cows up to 28 cents dearer, 140 to 185. The best heavyweight bull topped at 188 cents per kilo. This is David Kent at Mossvale for MLA. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. And a reminder, of course, uh, with the uh, weather conditions changing and uh, some of the fire grounds as well, stay listening to ABC Local Radio for the latest fire information. And uh, check out the uh, uh, Fires Near Me or Hazards Near Me website as well for the latest information. We're, he- we're heading up to news time at one o'clock.